0: a lot of middle-class families, that is families with kids, delve into or drop into poverty. And often it's connected to the fact that they've got kids and and they're so close to just making it financially with their children that if anything happens in the family, the father, mother, any, any of the kids get seriously sick and suddenly their health costs become a liability, they're thrown into poverty. So there's that part that is a real danger that people don't recognize in the U.S., as well as just the poor people who simply, you know, they don't have financial or, or easy access. If you're a poor person, think about this. You're spending every day of your life trying to figure out how you and your family are going to survive. A wise man once said... A
1: wise man once said...
0: The best way to predict the future...
1: ...is to create it. You're about to experience a next level show. Scientists, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, you're listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. Welcome back. I am your host, Carl Taylor. And in today's episode, we have a fascinating conversation. We're joined by Mel known more formally as Mary Ellen Hart. She's a biologist who writes on climate change and population issues. In 2008, she co-authored the free downloadable book, Cool the Earth, Save the Economy, which you can find at www.cooltheearth.us. And she also produced the weekly The Climate Change This Week blog, which detailed the constant effect of climate change on humanity at the Huffington Post from 2012 to 2017. And in this episode, we tackle some pretty big issues and, um, you know, some very emotional and touchy subjects, I think, for, for many people probably to hear. I mean, if you have kids, or you're thinking about having kids, or even really you're just a human on this planet concerned about climate change and and population, this is going to be an episode that you don't want to miss. Uh, we cover climate change from the aspect of population and what impact that's having, and we talk about what if we don't get control of this, what is a potential future we're going to see? And to be honest, it she painted a pretty bleak picture of what could come to pass. So let's not delay any more. Let's get straight into this amazing episode. All right, I'm super excited for today's episode. We are joined by Mel Hart. Mel, I heard on the grapevine that there is a clam named after you. Is that true?
0: Yes. And it's happily living off the coast of New Caledonia. It's named Lyocanka Melharte.
1: That's a mouthful. I'm glad that you can remember it. (laughs) How did that come about? That that sounds fascinating.
0: In an earlier part of my life, I was a marine biologist, and I was studying the evolution of Venus clams. And there was a pretty famous guy among the marine biologists, Kev Lamprell, who uh, had the largest collection of bivalves. And so he was constantly going ahead and talking to me about the unknowns that he had in his collection. And I pointed out some new unknown ones in his collection when I visited him. And at one point, he was showing me two very similar ones saying, are they different? And I said, yeah, this one is such and such. That one is such and such. Very minor differences, but they were standard. And he said, oh, okay. And then the next thing I know, he says, I'm naming one of them after you.
1: <laughs> that's fantastic. Fantastic. No, I'm sure there's not too many people in the world who can probably go around saying, oh, I've got a clam <laughs> named after me. So that's, that's fantastic. What's really interesting is you're a biologist who specifically was focusing a lot on climate change and then now you're focused on population as as a particular area and so i'm fascinated like how how do you go from a marine biologist to climate change to population like what's this journey that you've been on
0: the arc of it is that my husband was the first person to start a field experiment on global warming in the world and it started in 1990 it's been going continuously since then, and they've been able to show the effects of global warming on a subalpine field. So I understood that global warming was a real thing. It bothered me that a lot of media, though, didn't understand that it was a 24, 7, 365 days a year, a constant event. The water was constantly getting warmer. And so that's one of the things that led me to start doing a series at the Huffington Post as a climate blogger, basically saying, climate change this week, as if to say, here, check out everything that's going around the world in terms of solutions, in terms of the developing problem, in terms of all sorts of interesting facts connected with climate change, and salute everything in between, the politics, the whole ball of wax. Yeah, the fact that it's there all the time. It's not just when a big storm starts, oh, that's climate change. No, no, it's
1: there constantly. I'm curious, like for those that may be listening who, you know, maybe they'll go, yep, the climate is getting warmer, um, but they might be saying, but, you know, I don't believe it's it's man-caused. What would you say to those people?
0: There's a real interesting story uh, there. Uh, There was a chemist. I mean, it's this simple. There was a chemist back in the 1890s. Arrhenius was his name. And he took a look at all the emissions coming out of the Industrial Revolution that time, you know, the factories in England and so forth. And he did a back-of-the-envelope calculation saying, okay, hang on, they're putting all of this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And I understand what carbon dioxide does. He just made calculations and he said, at this rate, if they keep on doing this and it increases and so forth and so on, he said, the Earth is going to go ahead and warm up by this amount and by this time. And he got it right on the nail. And yeah. so in the 1890s, he had basically told you accurately what was going to happen to the planet with the emissions from all these uh, factories.
1: Right. Like the, the thing I can imagine, though, and I, I don't have many in my, my circle of influence, but I know that there's people out there that will would hear that and go, yeah, but the, the world has been you know, cool and warm numerous times throughout history. Why is this any different? Who's to say this is just not the normal cycle?
0: What's the the
1: argument to those people? Because I personally don't know what to say. I mean, for me, my my argument is always like, well, whether you're right or I'm right, if you're right and there's there's no problem, it's pretty not that Well, let's let's look
0: at the history, okay? And if you look at history and how fast the planet warms and how fast it cools down, you realize that what's going on right now is if you view the geological record, it's a virtual explosion because this isn't happening over a thousand years, how fast the planet's warming. It's happening literally over many decades. So suddenly, we're talking about a hundred, hundreds of times faster. And the thing about that, too, is that the evolution of life, the actual mechanism of evolution on life, is really adapted to much slower changes. So this change is happening much faster than most life on earth is capable of really adapting to.
1: And that's, that's the rug, right? It's, 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 the speed. It's, it's a
0: very fast thing. That's happening much faster than it has ever happened historically. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. And, and so, okay, we, we can agree that the planet is warming and if there's still a skeptic out there as to whether it's man-made or not, uh, hopefully they can at least agree that there is climate change happening so, I mean, what are some of the, the the factors? I mean, you're now moved to population as being a, as a big part of what you believe is the cause. But take me through the journey of how did you end up deciding that focusing on population well, was going to help?
0: after about five years of doing this on the Huffington Post, uh, Trump got elected. And I realized uh, just a few months after he was actually acting, uh, you know, formally a president, that there was so much focus on the man that people weren't really cluing into what I had to say about climate change anymore. And by that time anyway, I started becoming uh, really, really concerned about the fact that a lot of people are connected to technical or focused on technical solutions, you know, switching to clean energy and uh, energy efficiency and so forth. And yet you found people still stumbling over themselves or simply not mentioning the population problem because they were afraid of insulting or offending other cultures or other countries when anyone started talking about population that all they could think of is, are you trying to tell me how to go ahead and manage our populations?" Like, And that smacks of control and all sorts of horrible things, you know, forced sterility and stuff like that. And so it had politicized even before people were talking about it. Yeah. And yet, if you think about it, What's happening in the planet here is we are seeing some of these pressures of population and it's resulting in a lot of inhumanity, a lot of inhumane killings, wars, and so forth. And so I wanted to approach it from the most politically accessible perspective, which is how can we go ahead and bring our populations to sustainable levels and do it humanely, not through the crashes when... You don't have enough resources or uh, or it's too polluted. You can't stay here anymore, so you're forced to move somewhere else. And now you're uh, bumping into another country where their population is already stressing resources and they don't want you. And you can see that certainly in the sort of thing that's happening with Syrian refugees heading up into Europe and straining government resources of the various countries there. That's why I said, okay, so what is, what is most accessible way of approaching the population in a humane way
1: in terms of trying to just get to sustainable levels. And And, you mentioned sustainable levels. I mean, what exactly are sustainable levels?
0: Well, you know, ecologists guessed that around the 1950s or so, we probably hit our maximum sustainable level of humanity. And that was about mm, somewhere between one and two billion people. So they're willing to say, well, maybe two billion people. Right now we're headed towards, oh, what is it, seven? Are we at seven seven
1: point six according seven to my research? Yes.
0: yes. And they keep on talking. <laughs> this is another thing that bothers me. These media people of uh, main uh, channel media will say, whenever they're talking about population growth, will say, Yes. And when we hit eleven billion in twenty fifty, I think to myself, they're not even saying if and yes. yet where we're headed. We might be destroying so much of the planet and its capability of sustaining us that by 2050, we might be in a crash, a major crash. and It might be from any number of factors combined that's causing this crash. No one should assume that saying we're going to automatically hit uh, 11 billion, 15 billion, or whatever. We are probably going to crash as surely as Bacteria populations crash in petri dishes, and for basically the same reason. You create so much pollution, you toxify you toxify your environment, which is happening all the time, or you run out of resources.
1: You don't believe that as a society and all the technology that's being constantly created that we won't come and say, you know, find magical ways from technology that will avert some of these crises uh, in time?
0: Well, let's talk about a recent example. Back in the 1960s, 70s-ish, they had what they called the Green Revolution to boost food production around the world. Now, the architect of the Green Revolution said, guys, all I'm doing here is buying us some time because what we're doing to the soils to go ahead and create this Green Revolution is basically sucking a lot of nutrients out of them that we aren't replacing. True enough, a lot of soils around the earth, especially in India and other places in Asia, are now starting to go bottoms up because we've sucked all the nutrients out of them with all these artificial fertilizers and everything else. And so these tech fixes that we have are not long-term fixes. They can go ahead and boost things for a while, but unsustainably. And at some point, you've got to reckon with just the ceilings in terms of resources and regenerative resources on this planet.
1: Yeah, or hope that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk get us as an interplanetary species before then.
0: (laughs) You you know, (laughs) that's that's another big thing. If you think it's difficult to live here on Earth, think about how difficult it is to live on Mars. And not only that, how much resources it'll, it'll give, it'll mean to go ahead and just ship a few people to Mars. And you know that this is not
1: a real solution in any
0: sense of the word.
1: Yeah, not, not for the entire humanity, at least, maybe for a select few. Um, Try a dozen. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting. So you said one to two billion, and we're currently at 7.6 billion. And as you said, like by 2050, they're talking of it hitting 11 billion. Uh, based on my research, and I don't know if you read uh, Bill and Melinda Gates' 2018 letter, uh, they talked a bit about population. And, and it does show, the data does seem to show that population growth is slowing down. Why is this still an issue for us to think about population growth if we are starting to slow down already? Because
0: it's not slowing down fast enough. Because we're going to shoot up to levels that will crash before we ever get to the point where we stop growing. Got it. Uh, We will stop growing with a crash. We will not stop growing because we're you know slowly approaching an asymptotic peak or anything like that. The general inertia of just growth without thinking consciously about what we're doing is too slow. It's not a fast enough solution, basically.
1: Got it. I mean, that, that's a perfect segue to, well, what is your proposed solution? What do you think that we can we can do about it? What's, what's the area you've been focusing on?
0: Okay. About one in two pregnancies worldwide are unintended. Let that sink in for a bit, okay? One in two. So 50% of all the pregnancies in the world every year are unintended. Some of them result in abortion. Some of them result in miscarriage and so forth, but a large number of them result in births. Think if we could just go ahead and provide provide a way for women not to have unintended pregnancies. That is, give women and their partners exactly what they want, which is control over when they have children, when they feel they want them, and can support them.
1: So when, when you say unintended pregnancies, what exactly, how would you define unintended pregnancies versus unplanned? No, there are plenty
0: of people who go ahead and plan for pregnancies, okay? They're going to say, in fact, my husband and I really planned very carefully for the one child I had. There are plenty of people who are in that sort of gray zone of, um, well, I'll just see how things go. And a lot of those people don't think about the financial ramifications of something like that. In the U.S., a lot of middle-class families—that is, families with kids—delve into or drop into poverty, and often it's connected to the fact that they've got kids and and they're so close to just making it financially with their children that if anything happens in the family, the father, mother, any any of the kids get seriously sick, and suddenly their health costs become a liability, they're thrown into poverty. So there's that part that is a real danger that people don't recognize in the US as well as just the poor people who simply you know they don't have financial or or easy access if you're a poor person think about this you're spending every day of your life trying to figure out how you and your family are going to survive it takes up every minute it means you don't have a whole lot of choices you grab for a job the job might involve a lot of time-eating things connected to it, commuting, whatever. That means you suddenly you don't have much time for anything else except getting a job, making enough money, and then trying to see that your kids are taken care of. Where does visiting a, a family planning facility and then getting contraceptives that you have to then buy maybe or you have to keep on renewing on any sort of period or anything like that, a time period. So all of these things suddenly become something that gee, it falls off the radar and suddenly you have another kid on the way and you didn't mean to do that, but it happened.
1: Is there data to show, and I I think I read somewhere that there is, but is there data to show that that kind of higher birth rates are linked to poverty globally, not just in the US?
0: You can go ahead and look at the demographic data. And again, a lot of middle-class families, depending upon the number of children they have, are much more likely to drop into poverty because of uh, the ensuing problems that can happen with any one person so often involving healthcare issues.
1: Well, and as you say, like you know, often well, pretty well all contraceptives require continual consumption and buying, and so if Except, you're already if you're already poor, uh, you you're tied on your money. That might be one thing you choose to skip on.
0: Except, and this is why this is what I'm trying to go ahead and urge everyone: there are a whole new generation of contraceptives called LARCs, long-term active, reversible contraceptives. These things work for about three or more years without any maintenance. Someone puts an insert in your arm or a new generation of ultra safe IUD and it stays there for, you know, three or four years until you have to get it changed and switched out for another one. Now, imagine if you're a poor person and you've been given that opportunity. Honey, put this thing inside you and you don't have to worry about any kids for the next three years. Suddenly the mother thinks, oh my gosh, I can go ahead and concentrate on the rest of my family and build up some funding and so forth in case we want kids later and do it then. But very few poor people have access to these. And so why not? Because it's in the interest of a country. In the United States, you spend $1 on family planning by contraceptives and things like that. You get a payback. This is Data shows us You get a payback of over $7 in savings, and that has to do with not just health care issues connected to having kids or not having kids, but the whole ball of wax, the fact that you have fewer people in poverty. In fact, I'm not even sure if it even takes into account these extra things, which is you have fewer people going into poverty. Demographic data just shows that if a woman is in poverty... And she has one unintended pregnancy. She's anchored to poverty for the rest of her life. And demographic data also shows that she is likely to live anywhere from one up to 20 years or a shorter lifespan than people who are not in poverty.
1: Wow, that's interesting.
0: It really is a a humanitarian issue. You're actually denying people life because they've been hooked into poverty and they didn't mean to be, but that's what happened. And so this is the perfect thing for a government to think of, my gosh, we could save a lot on our uh, budgets if we went ahead and gave them free access to larks. I'm saying larks especially because for poor people, that's probably the best match to their lifestyle
1: at this point. Yeah, do it um, once, not have to think about it for a couple of years. For
0: years, exactly. You give them a breather space to go ahead and then go back to it again.
1: And so um, a lark's expensive? Is it really a finance issue? Is the accessibility or is it an education issue?
0: Both, but it depends. In the United States, if you really are poor, you can get a lark from anywhere from for free to maybe $150, even though a LARC might cost someone who can pay up to $1,500. So it's, it's a sliding scale. Usually a woman pays several hundred dollars but like I said, if you're poor and you go to uh, what we call Title X clinics that have financing from the government for family planning, uh, they'll give you uh, contraceptives for free.
1: Okay. So so then that sounds like it's really an education issue then of making sure enough enough people are aware that this is even an option that they can very get much, to.
0: Very much. In California, the last time we had stats on this, we were seeing that a very low percentage of poor people were choosing uh, larks, and I think part of it was we don't have the outreach to really explain what they are. And there's also, you know, outreach comes in all sorts of flavors. You can get people who think you're reaching out to them, but if you're reaching out to, say, like a different culture in California, a large portion of our poor population are Hispanics, are migrant workers, and so forth. They have their own cultural values to deal with. And mm. so you have to approach them through their own cultural channels if you don't uh, you're not likely to get across the message you want
1: to them i'm conscious that we're we're talking a lot about poor people here in this context but is this truly just isolated to the the lower economic
0: the demographic data that we have on this and this is another thing we could use a lot more demographic data but the demographic data we have on this shows that the group of women most vulnerable most vulnerable to unintended pregnancies that account to over of pregnancies aren't teenagers, by the way. It's the 20 to 40-year-old childbearing women who are poor and relatively uneducated. They account for over 50% of unintended pregnancies in the U.S. Now, country to country, this is going to differ, but I'm especially focusing on the U.S. This is the thing that concerns me and specifically in California. But the U.S., because we're the highest consumers in the world. So every time we give birth to a child, we're really making a big carbon footprint.
1: Yeah. Every time I go to the U.S., I'm always impressed at how much better you are as buyers and consumers of products compared to at least us in Australia. And I've looked at that going, wow, from a business point of view, that's amazing. But from a a population and environmental point of view, I hadn't really connected the dots to go, well, hold on, that means that the U.S. probably creates a bigger debt per population.
0: And the US also is, I think, has some of the best marketers in the world for just, you know, encouraging that consumption. You just see it all the time. It's so easy, I think, for a lot of people to get sucked in. I came from a family, a large family, actually, and we weren't very, uh, I guess we were lower middle class, although I never felt that way about it. And so we were always thinking in terms of conserving and not buying more than you needed. And So really, I look around, and I start feeling like a stranger, and saying these Americans—you know they, the slightest drop of a hat are going in and spending their money.
1: Yeah, definitely. One question I have though is, if we're saying that there's there's this unintended pregnancy issue, and and fifty uh, percent you said of of pregnancies are often unintended, what about the the fact that? Many would say fertility rates are dropping, and I mean, if you're a conspiracy theorist listening, you might even say that the you know the government is putting things in our water and doing these things to actually purposely poison us so that our <laughs> fertility rates rates drop and they can control population.
0: First of all, yes, it's interesting how often I will talk to even um, very educated people of the liberal persuasion who are, you know, very progressive on these ideas. And yet they'll say to me things like, well, what about this rising infertility? And that's actually relevant to what I'm suggesting because I'm talking specifically about giving women and their partners what they want, which is control over their fertility. Now, there's a whole other segment of people who want to be able to conceive and Yes, they, they should be allowed to go ahead and pursue that as best they can. But what I'm trying to do here in no way impacts those people. It's simply trying to say, let's just go ahead and help the women who don't want don't to want get pregnant right now. The other thing, too, is I like to say to people, if you think infertility is, is somehow impacting population growth, go to, I think it's com
1: or or um, uh, it's, it's worldometers.info slash world, uh, hyphen population. We'll have a link in the show notes, but, uh, okay. yeah, I looked at this, uh, and, and you,
0: you can be mesmerized by watching those numbers, just increasing before your eyes. Well, today
1: alone, 138,000 births today alone.
0: There we go. And counting.
1: <laughs> yeah. And counting. It's already, it's already gone up hundreds of, um, already. So yeah. Right. Right. It's amazing. We identify that we need to reduce these unintended pregnancies. If we project into the future, if we do nothing and it stays at the current levels of, of you know, 50% being unintended, or we actually do something about it, what, what are our potential futures? Because, w- I mean, if we're, if we're talking about projecting out to 11, 000, 11 billion people... What impact can we truly make if we manage to curb this unintended pregnancy issue?
0: Well, well, look, there are three
1: important
0: things I like
1: to tell people that they can do.
0: One of them is vote for leaders who understand the problem and are willing to work at a federal level to address the problem. So that's very important. Get out and vote. Another one is to get involved in organizations that understand the problem too and are trying to work Towards affecting change uh, for humane solutions to the problem of unsustainable growth. Just like I'm saying here, there are organizations that are trying to go ahead and um, do something about preventing unintended pregnancies. It can be as simple, it can be as simple as lobbying for a family planning clinic in your community. Or if there is one, volunteering, helping them out. They're always in need of more help. So you could do something like that. Finally, and seriously, people should consider about having one or no children. It's been shown by far, if you really want to do something about the carbon footprint on this planet, for so many other problems as well, the best thing you can do far and away is to have one or no children. And it's not something that I entered into lightly. You know, I thought about it. You know, God forbid if my daughter dies tomorrow, I have no children. But, you know, there are also benefits here. One is I was able to go ahead and concentrate resources on my daughter and give her the best opportunities possible in terms of education, seeing the world. She saw all 12 continents before she was 12. 12 years old. Can you imagine all the continents of the planet before she was 12 years old? That really has made an impression on her. She has a, a very global view of this planet that she lives on. And then finally, it also gave me the space, the mental space that I needed to understand that children do not define us. They require, yes, our love and our bonds of love, but it's the same bonds of love that we should be developing for all of us on this planet. If you want to find fulfillment in your life, look for it, not through how many children you have or what your child is doing in life, but how you can go ahead and make a dent on this planet and help care for everyone on it. Because we are, in the end, a very tribal species. We get together in big groups. We depend upon big groups. Even that those hermits way up there, wherever, unless they are absolutely getting every bit of food from just hunting or gathering wild plants, uh, I think there are precious few. You're dependent on the rest of humanity. And so you have to think in terms of, how can I go ahead and
1: improve the rest of humanity? Yeah, I can imagine it's a very emotional topic for, for many people to think about You know, having no children or just one, or and I'm sure it must be difficult if you're one part of a relationship that's wanting more and the other one's are wanting less. It would be a a very difficult conversation to have.
0: Oh, it is. It is. You really have to think about it, but then that's also part of establishing a long-term relationship. Hopefully you're establishing a relationship with someone who sort of understands these things too and recognizes them for being kind of important. Yeah, Um, definitely. If we don't do this, look, if we don't do this, we really are headed for a very inhumane end. We will be, as it is right now, one of the things that concerns me, for instance, having been a marine biologist, is the crashing of marine ecosystems. I certainly, over in Australia, you're getting to see that with the coral reefs, the devastation of the coral reef. Literally, I put my head down on the table and started crying when I started hearing about the devastation over there because I have seen your reefs. I've seen reefs all over the world. I understand what these beautiful undersea cathedrals are that are millions of years in the making.
1: And the fact that we are just, through our own thoughtlessness, destroying them. Absolutely. When you say like a devastating crash, what are we talking here? Like uh, starvation, uh, the planet exploding. Like what what are we talking about?
0: We'll, Well, we'll be talking about things like creating, uh, basically having an environment that's uninhabitable and nowhere to go. Think about all those uh, migrants that are crossing the Mediterranean from Africa over to Europe, and they're going because they have no other option, because droughts have gone ahead and destroyed their way of life, and there's no place else that they can move to, thank you, because that every the rest of the space has already been inhabited. And finally, they're being pushed across uh, the Mediterranean and often dying in, in doing so. Just think of that on a much more massive scale, and you'll start seeing that happening. And the causes, too, when you say, you know, it can be droughts, it can be toxification where your villages become so poisoned. Flint, Michigan in the United States, where the water is so poisonous, children uh, children have now contracted basically toxic levels of lead, which, of course, affects mental development over there. And these are a lot of poor people who have no place else to go. And are sitting there. And this is not a very humane situation. So yes, starvation, drought, just this destruction of your own environment. Epidemics. Uh, You'll get pandemics as more and more people are getting less and less nutrients because you can still grow plants. But if you grow plants, for example, under climate change, they're showing now that you can actually end up with plants that are not very nutritious. They're literally not taking up the nutrients that they need when they're growing in stressed conditions under climate change. So you end up with people who are more susceptible to disease. You end up with people who then don't necessarily have access to all the antibiotics that we need. Or maybe, because this is another problem, antibiotics are now becoming compromised because of their use around the world. You might not have an antibiotic for the next epidemic. There was a recent film within the past five years to seven years that really went into it very realistically. It was a blockbuster over here in the United States. I can't
1: remember the name
0: of it right now.
1: And it was what about the like a super virus without, and we didn't have antibiotics to protect us.
0: It was a, yes, it was a, it was about a new virus that had developed. We didn't have the antibiotics, and it just spread really fast and knocked out. And you don't need much actually. You only have to knock out about twenty percent of the population, and suddenly the structure of civilization starts crashing down around you because mm. you need so many people to maintain the structure. Think about it. <laughs> Think about how many countries inhabit your house in terms of the things that you have bought through those countries' labor in producing them. Suddenly it hits you. Oh, yeah.
1: Some could say that if we moved to a robotic civilization before before that, then <laughs> would losing the people... Um, Create that impact. But one of the scale things up, that,
0: you know, trying to yeah. scale up something like that requires an immense amount of resources. And when you have most of the people, or uh, a significant proportion of the people in the world, below poverty levels, suddenly you recognize how insane an idea that is as a solution.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think could be going through people's heads right now is they hear this and they go, okay, yep, the idea of I could just do, um, I can obviously promote the idea to, to others in my circle. Um, about the, the long-term contraceptives. It's also, they could take that opportunity themselves. They could also choose to only have one child or have no children. What if they're sitting there going, well, you know what? My country is very low on the population levels of the, whole, of the whole world. You know, we've got China and India being four times the population levels of even the U.S., Um, let alone me in Australia, we're like number 55 population levels. I can imagine someone thinking like, oh, well, do I really need to play my part? What impact does my one child make? What would you say to someone like that?
0: I guess I'd ask them, one, are any of their ecosystems being impacted by the fact that we're creating climate change through overconsumption? Two, I'd ask them, what is the average consumer level in their country? So, a lot of these developed countries have very high consumerism uh, levels, consumption levels. And so, that's contributing. And that's why I say that every nation needs to bring their populations to sustainable levels. Because it's not just a question of how many people, how densely populated you are. That's certainly a factor. But how much consumption are those people causing? And in the United States, you have relatively, it's not as dense as China or India, but thank you. It's very, very consumptive. And that's why we are, we have the largest carbon footprint in the world in terms of the pollution and everything else that goes along with consumerism, destruction of natural resources to go ahead and, and make all this stuff.
1: Yeah. No, good, good, good answer. And, and so I suppose to, to finish us up, uh, a question that I feel like I might already know your answer to this, but I'm I'm curious, when you think to the future, are you optimistic that we'll be able to solve this problem or or all the problems facing us, or are you more on the pessimistic side?
0: The logic in my head, you know, I think it's from the German side of my family. When I, I'm half Greek-American and half German-American, and I think the German side of my head, the logic side, which just says, Oh man, there are so many factors running against us right there now that I don't logically see us not going into some sort of uh, inhumane crash. But what can I do to go ahead and soften that as much as possible? And at the same time, what can I do to sort of save the rest of the world from us? And that's not a totally altruistic thing because the more we send other species into extinction, the more we are wiping out other opportunities for life and for our survival on this planet. There's a lot of work to be done for anyone who really wants to go ahead and say, I'm going to do something bad. I don't care how big the problem is. And that's where the optimism comes from. My brother at one point said to me "When I was saying. Oh, man, you know, we're really in some trouble here. And he said, Mel, and I don't know if you know, Wagner, Wagner, who created the ring cycle. And it's about mythological gods, okay? And in the final uh, act of the ring, the gods go into battle knowing, knowing they're going to be destroyed, but it doesn't stop them. And that's, for me, (laughs) uh, an uplifting thing to cling to. The thing that defines me that says, this is where my meaning as a human being comes into play. Am I going to let anything stop me from doing what's right? for all of us on this planet.
1: That's a beautiful way to, to finish up. If people want to connect with you, reach out to you or to follow your do what you're doing, what's the best way for them to, to kind of get in contact or find you?
0: Well, I guess they can, you know, my email. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty much Luddites. We don't text. I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> but I certainly check my email, Mel melhart, M-E-L-H-A-R-T-E at yahoo.com. I've also got... Um, I don't often put things uh, online, but I do still have, I think, a
1: WordPress. Anyway. It was great to talk. And we'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Mel, for your time. It's a fascinating conversation. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. To download the latest episode and find the transcript and various resources mentioned in today's episode, Visit our website at foh.show. That's foh, as in future of humanity, and show, as in s h o w. You can also via our website contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. So please do reach out. Now, if you haven't already subscribed, you can find the links to subscribe on all your favorite platforms at foh.show/slash subscribe. That's foh.show/slash subscribe. And more importantly, if you'd like to continue the conversation from today's episode and connect with other listeners, then you can join our free community at foh.show slash community, foh.show slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.